Yeah, we um we don't get a lot of vodka entries in the Ascots, and I I still don't. Know can't why. figure out why. Huh? <laughs> can't figure out why. Hopefully next year will be better. <laughs> This is Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon, bringing to you the best in news, reviews, and interviews with people making the bourbon whiskey industry happen. And I'm one of your hosts, Kenny Coleman. Love it or hate it, spirit competitions, they're here to stay. And they play an important role because they have an important impact on marketing. And they can put a small shimmer of light on new and upcoming brands. Or it could possibly change the course and turn brands such as Henry McKenna into unobtainables. And in this episode, Fred Minnick and myself, we talk about the multiple facets of spirits competitions because, well, we've now lived it. We're both enthusiasts just like you, so we care about what bourbons come out on top. And Fred, he's been a judge forever and now has his own competition called the Ascots. Plus, we have our own brand with Pursuit United, and it's been entered and done favorably well in many competitions. So Fred and I, we analyze all these angles and talk about the pay-to-play scenario, how people are selected to be judges, along with the best way to enter a competition as a brand owner. But with that, I hope you enjoy this week's episode. And now here's Fred Minnick with the Above the Char. I'm Fred Minnick, and this is Above the Char. This week's idea comes from Blake Overbay, who writes me on fredminnick.com. The word allocated is used all the time in the world of bourbon. But what does it really mean? Who actually does the allocating? The distributor or the distillery? It seems every store owner I talk to gives me a different answer. I had one store manager tell me that Buffalo Trace allocates their products among his company. And that does Buffalo Trace really have time and staff to do that? Similarly, can distributors dictate retailers' pricing? Okay, this is... This right here, Blake, you are jumping into the weeds, jumping into the weeds of bourbon. First of all, let me let me just go to dictionary.com. Look, I can tell you what allocate means, but I'll give you an official dictionary.com definition. To set apart for a particular purpose, assign, or allot. And here is how it's used. It's a verb to allocate funds for new projects. So essentially, allocate means, by definition, to set aside. So if a bourbon is allocated, it is set aside for however a retailer wants to sell it. A retailer can choose to sell it to their best customers. They can set it aside as a lottery. They can just set it aside, put it on the shelf, and that be that. To your other questions, who dictates the allocation? Well, the distilleries, they determine what states get what. And every state is different. Every state has particular allocation laws. And you learn this pretty quickly if you do barrel picks. And, you know, like the state of California gets allocated so many bottles and a company like a retailer like Keg and Bottle can only get so many bottles per through their distribution channels. So it's kind of like a... It's kind of like a trickle down effect or like a, you know, stuff goes downhill. But the original determination of an allocation begins at the distiller level, determining how much a distributor is going to get or how much a state is going to get. 
From there, the distributor determines how much a retailer is going to get, and a retailer will determine how much a consumer will get. Now, that being said, who makes those decisions? Now, there's been there's been talks of years of distilleries making those decisions, and they have people, boots on the ground, who are talking to retailers and telling them these things. Like, you listen to a retailer, you talk to a bar owner, and they're telling you that the distilleries themselves are telling them they don't fit within their allocation. So the distillery officials are communicating that. However, the decisions and the conversations that are being made that keep a bottle from going to a particular retailer, that is indeed the distributor. Now, this is a very complex, complicated issue. There's a lot of people involved. And there are the question is like, does does a distillery you, you refer to Buffalo Trace? actually have the staff to handle this? Uh, yeah. They actually employ people whose sole job is to determine allocations and where what goes where and so forth. When it comes to the individual retailer or bar, that weighs more heavily on the distributor. But most certainly, you know, don't be naive. The distillers certainly have a say. Like if, if there's a buddy-buddy with a retailer, that retailer will find a way to get a bottle. That's going to do it for this week's Above the Char. Hey, if you want to be like our friend Blake here, hit me up on fredminnick.com. That's fredminnick.com. Hit the contact button. And if I like the idea, I'll share it on the air. Until next week, cheers. Do you ever pour yourself a bourbon, swirl it around, and then start struggling to come up with tasting notes? And perhaps you're also looking for a good Father's Day gift idea. Well, you can now solve both with a kit from Nose Your Bourbon. And unlike other nosing kits on the market, Nose Your Bourbon kits feature real ingredients for the most authentic aromas. You can smell real Tahitian vanilla bean instead of some synthetic aroma that's just made from chemicals. So head on over to noseyourbourbon.com and enter code BP10 for 10% off your order. And they're off for another Gift 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at Give270.org. Charitable Gaming License ORG 000 From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com, and you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits, and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. 
You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Welcome, everybody. We're back with another episode of Bourbon Pursuit, the official podcast of bourbon. It's actually me and Fred today. Ryan's not here, so we're just going to be uh, it's going to be a fun conversation with just the two of us. We haven't done this before. It's I feel like I feel like I'm cheating on him a little bit. I know. Well, you know, he uh, <laughs> he he's probably going to hit us up and sing. Oh, I see, guys. You know, because remember early on, he used to always talk about how we were like kicking him out or something. You know, yeah, we were going to try to edge him out somehow. Yeah, he always has that kind of like fear in the back of his mind. It's like like you're the last guy in this podcast that we, we would get rid of because everybody loves you and people hate Kenny and me. So it's like you know everyone loves Ryan. True. I can't wait to see the reviews on this episode. I know, right? It's like one star. No, Ryan. Fuck this place. <laughs> <laughs> but Ryan's actually, it's we're recording in the summertime right now, and he's got his kids today, so he's he's not with us. But we took this as an opportunity because we had some time on our schedule to say, let's go ahead and let's hop on and, and talk about something that is kind of near and dear to a lot of people's hearts, whether you are a general consumer, whether you're a brand owner, whether you're a judge, or whether you are just a bourbon enthusiast, it's spirits competitions. They are something that is, it's polarizing at best, and it's sort of like one of those necessary things, like you got to feed the devil and feed the engine that kind of keeps pumping this out. But it's going to be good to kind of go through this. And gosh, I'd said four things right there. And I guess the fifth thing is we can also talk about being an owner of an actual judging competition too, right? That's right. I mean, gosh, <laughs> get your ascot right there. So we're going to have to take uh, uh, multiple angles as as we kind of look yep. at this. And and I guess first off, you know, from from Fred, that you you kind of like the you've got the history when it comes to the judging, the spirits competitions. And for anybody that's out there that hasn't listened or know anything about you, mm-hmm. kind of give your little background on how long you've been doing them. So I have been a part of spirits competitions going back to 2008 when I started judging cocktail competitions. And, you know, if you're a writer in the spirits and wine space, usually get brought into some kind of competition. And and I started doing uh, reviews like uh, actual like wine and uh, whiskey reviews for magazines like Sommelier Journal, Tasting Panel. And this this started in 2008 and I'd been... I had just been kind of uh, covering the industry up until that point. And, you know, if you are a, if you're in the media space, you know, writing and, and, and one of the, one of the, one of the areas that you don't get invited to at that point were, were the spirits competitions and the spirits competitions usually at that stage brought in mostly distributors, retailers, restaurateurs, bartenders, there were a handful of media, but not many. And that's because they didn't want media influencing it? Or is it because uh, they didn't think well, they were like, they were not a real part of the industry or something? Yeah, it's it, that's what it was. They didn't feel like they were a real part of the industry. And when uh, spirits competitions wanted people who make decisions on the spirits of buying them. And so that's what they felt like those people had better palates. I was able to convince the owners of the San Francisco World Spirits Competition, and my palate was good enough, you know, to be in their competition. And they they didn't have they didn't have like a like a bourbon guy. They didn't have like a bourbon judge. They had like people who loosely 
knew bourbon and and covered it, but they didn't have anyone who was in the heart of Kentucky or anything like that. So they asked me to be a judge and their their bourbon entries went up pretty extensively uh, after that. Was this the first judging competition that you were part of? No, that was not the first one. That was the first big one. I had done some like some smaller scale things, but that was the in and San Francisco is the biggest. When I went to to judge that, I mean, um, there were I was like so dialed in. I was like taking it so seriously, and and my captain Steve Bill, who's still a part of the competition, and he's in the Whiskey Hall of Fame. And you know, if you go to the Bullet Distillery, you'll see his face up there. He's just in a great iconic whiskey taster. He's, he used to be part of Diageo's Masters of Whiskey, and we're on this table, and I'm tasting everything, and I'm think, you know, I'm, I'm in my early thirties and I'm like, uh, you know, that's the stage in your career where you, you know, if you feel like you know something, you just won't shut up about it. And, uh, and I <laughs> was just confidence. Like, yeah. I was overconfident. And I was like going through the line of like, you know, like a lot of people do in blind tastings. Like, I know what this is. I know what that is. I know what this is. And Beal, you know, the captain of a table is kind of like, it's kind of like a, a platoon sergeant if you're in the military. It's the the people who tell you to shut up if you're being too cocky. And Beal was like, you don't focus on what it is. You focus about what the, you know, if it's good in the glass. And it was, and it was, it was kind of unusual for me because I was trying to figure out what it was. And it, and it's true. Like, if you think about what you're tasting as a brand, you you start creating perceived biases instead of just focusing on what's in the glass. And so that became like a separation for me in my career of like not focusing on what the brand is and just focusing on the glass. And that was very important to me at, at that stage. And at any rate, it was also like we were told to judge it by the glass, give it a medal. And so we're not we're not comparing the flight against each other. We were comparing the, you know, we weren't comparing them at all. We were just saying like, okay, this is a, if you think of it like a, like a classroom, you know, I would be like the teacher giving each one of these glasses a grade and each one of the glasses were my students. And so that's basically how I was, how I learned that uh, the process was. And it it felt bizarre at first, but after a couple of years, it it made a lot more sense. But basically, every competition is different. Every competition is, you know, they have their own qualifications, they have their own grading systems, and, and there's lots of them out there now. But San Francisco is kind of like the hallmark, and this is one of the things that I, I try to tell people is like these are businesses. They're not non-for-profit. These are businesses, and they make their money off of entries. Some of them make their money off of licensing as well, but the more entries that they get, the more revenue they earn. And that's, that's a, it's a part of the marketing arms of these distilleries to get, to get awards. And San Francisco is like one of, the, one of the big ones. And I remember at the panel level, how San Francisco works is everybody is tasting and like then you you compare your notes and then after at the end of it it's awarded a medal and if everybody gave a product at the table a gold it then won double gold 
and we would decide if it would go on and compete in sweepstakes. And the sweepstakes is basically a a taste off round where you know everybody raises their hand. All right, what's your favorite? Like it goes up against the other ones in there. What's your favorite? And then we would put forth, and so those would be like the specialized judges, and then like the top ones out of the sweepstakes rounds would go to the finals. And that's where all the judges would taste. And these are these are people who are running hotels. These are people who are the buyers for for Bevmo, Total Wine, distributors all over the world. You know, it's the showcase showdown of the spirits yeah. world, right? Yeah. That's right. That's and that's San Francisco. And so that's just one of them. And I've been on other competitions that are very different. In total, I think I've I've been a taster on six competitions. I've been invited to pretty much all of them to be a judge on them. I can't do them all. And now I own my own competition. So I got recruited to start like my own competition and I could kind of use some of my more unique techniques to, you know, to bring into like the tasting rounds and, and, you know, we live stream them on my YouTube channel. It's called the American Spirits Council of Tasters, which it's named after, you know, the abbreviated, it's the ASCOTs. And I'm not you know, ironically, I'm not even wearing an ascot right now. <laughs> but we get laid back for it today. But this is the this is the trophy. It's sister competition is the Barley Corn Awards. So my partner that I started this with also owns the um Barley Corn Awards, which pursuit won. You guys won uh won best bourbon. Yeah, we're I'm very excited about that. We'll we'll talk about that in a little bit. I think there's some things about the the competition that we should probably dispel a few different myths. And and one of them that you kind of talked about was was the money for for entries. Mm-hmm. I, we see this all the time because there'll be there'll be spirits competitions. We enter podcast award competitions, and right. everybody's in the comments. They're always they say the same answers and that's like if it was really a competition it wouldn't be pay for play and you shouldn't have to be able to pay you should just be able to give awards and it's like wait a minute no there's yeah. there's people that are behind this there's people that are you know on the, the spirits competition side where you have to host all these judges right. that come in you've got to pay for their lodging and their room and board and food and kind of stuff like that while they're there and it's probably not the most extravagant thing but it's there while they're there they've got website, you've got all the marketing behind it, you've got everything yeah. that kind of builds this whole this whole funnel. It's a business entity. It is. And yeah. and to be fair, as a brand that when we enter these things, it's pretty nominal. I mean, mm-hmm. what, four hundred, fifty, six hundred dollars an entrance fee for one product? I mean, mm-hmm. for brands that are doing, I don't know, close to five hundred million dollars in revenue, I'm sure you can go ahead and cough up five hundred bucks to be able to go and submit a, a bottle for a competition. So that's why it's it seems like it's always taken out of context when people say, oh, it's it's pay to play. Everybody gets a medal. Yeah. I don't really feel like that's a, a fair judgment. Well, I mean, I understand where people are coming from with that because it very much depends on the competition. When I did the World Whiskey Awards, you know, people would pay an entry fee and they wouldn't get anything. And so there's there's that. But after that year, you know, the and, and I've been on the other end of it. Like our competition, we don't give out awards to everything. Like we have like it's it's, it's a percentage kind of a proprietary weird percentage kind of thing. And there's and we get emails like I entered the competition I didn't get this we got a we got a double gold at, at such and such competition we're not entering again 
You know, so we've gotten on the business side, I've gotten the blowback for not giving people awards. But the other thing is like, if somebody says anything, like we didn't get anything, what do you want to do? Roll back the hands in time of and go be like, oh, let's go retaste this one and give you a medal. Like it's not, we don't do that. This isn't third yeah, grade. No, I don't have your, you know, your mom's not here to go, you know, to your, to your defense here. Well, in and, and like, and then the, like when consumers look at it, they're like, wow, look at all these ones that won and George T. Stagg was in the lower tier, then the consumers are like, oh, well, looks like they don't know what they're doing or whatever. You know, I mean, I mean, at San Francisco, there were years I didn't, I didn't give a Pappy or a Eagle Rare 17 year old medals and other people on my panel did. And that's where it's at the panel stage. Like, let's say there are, let, let me give you like a makeup of like different medals. And this is not just San Francisco. This is this is a lot of competitions. You would have you would have two bronzes and a silver, and like there's a discussion as to whether or not it's worthy of a silver or a bronze. And then it comes out like it's it's a bronze. That brand gets a gets a bronze medal, and then they broadcast that they got a bronze medal, and consumers think that they they, they came in third place. That's because that's how people have been trained to think about medals in this space. And that's where people come from, like everybody, you know, it's pay to play. But the fact is, a lot of times there's, let's say, it's a panel of five, four no medals and a gold at a table. You know, that's happened before. And guess what? It doesn't get a medal. And, you know, not everything does get a medal. And it's kind of like, I really do equate it to like a test score. You know, you're, you, it's basically or what you would consider a magazine score. If it's getting a bronze, that's probably a 75 to like 82 point score. You know, so you're like a maybe that's a C plus student, you know? And so most of us graduate high school and some of us graduate college and uh, with, with just C's and, you know, occasionally a D or something. You know, that's what, that's what a lot of those are. But pay to play, I mean, pay to play is an actual term that is meant to say like, all right, I'm going to pay you a certain amount of money and you're going to give me this award. Like pay to play is like uh, coverage in a magazine after you bought like a magazine ad. You know, this is like an entry entry fee and there are entry fees for the James Beard Awards. There's entry fees for the Emmys, the Oscars the and all that. tournament. Uh, local soccer tournaments, everything for everything. The, the difference is in where I understand the consumers points are everyone seems to come away from with medals at these. And that's why with like my competition, we tried to, we've tried to kind of scale that back a little bit, but more importantly, we want to like shine like the, the whole transparency thing. And I think San Francisco is very transparent because they've let reporters in. They let used to let me like write about every single thing. There's been filmmakers there showing every step. They've got two or three people certifying things. I mean, as a whole, these are usually ran by good people who are, you know, being above board and ethical, but they are also transparent about the process. You know, they're not, if, if a panel gave everything a bronze and then it somehow got a double gold, I mean, that's where things to me are, are fishy. And that's, and I've never seen that happen. So that's the, that's the part of it. It's like people can choose to uh, think they're worthwhile or not, but they're very important to the brands because the brands, uh, 
get something that they can talk about. And if they if they win a big award, like if they if you win a double gold at San Francisco, that's big. That's a that's a big win. Or if you win a competition, that's huge, you know. And like at San Francisco, that's where we picked Henry McKenna's best whiskey. And I wrote about it for Forbes. And I know I probably shouldn't have done that because now I can't <laughs> find Henry McKenna anymore. Yeah, you, you, you screwed everybody on that one. I screwed, sure. I screwed my, myself. That used to be my house bourbon. But, but um, the thing about that as well as with things like Henry McKenna, the double golds, the ones that win best overall bourbon, yes, they get this, this limelight for a period of time. But Henry McKenna is kind of one of those weird ones, when I think about it, that somehow has stayed there. Because ever since it won that one competition, and everybody has to remember, what is Henry McKenna? It is a 10-year-old bottle and bond single barrel. So that barrel is long gone, yet Mm -hmm. we are here still, what, five, four or five years later? And we're still talking about that still win. You can't find it on shelves. It won back-to-back best bourbon. Let's be very clear about it. It won back to best back to back best bourbon at at uh, San Francisco. You know, it's done quite well. You know, in terms of like single barrels, like we single barrels have now been um, in a lot of competitions. They don't go forward into the best the best of. I don't think they should. I think it's yeah. a unfair representation of of the brand to say that oh we have one single barrel that we, we won. Okay, you got what, 150 bottles out of it? That's mm-hmm. great. And now we're going to make a big stink about it. I, I just don't feel it's a great representation. But it's also the same, like, you know, there are 50 year old scotches that are entered. You know, there's only 80 bottles of something like that. There are like uh, really rare Armagnacs and Calvados entered, and there's very few bottles of them. I mean, Across the board in the spirits industry, a, a limited run of bottles is not unique to to bourbon and, and the single barrels, and it's kind of when in on, on this side now that I'm on this side as the as an owner of a competition, whereas before I was a judge and I just tasted things that were there and I had no idea what was going on on the admin side where things were good getting put. What I've what I've seen is like. The people who are entering these competitions are often like an intern or a PR rep, and they will blindly put them into, they will put a, a, a single barrel port finish in, uh, in Bottled and Bond or <laughs> something like that. Like, I mean, they have no clue what they're doing. And so we actually, we actually hired somebody who knows the industry to comb through that because I can't be doing that. And so we hired someone who to come through that to make sure they were in the right entries and and there's there's people who try to put them in the wrong categories all the time consistently. Speaking of the categories, I found something that's kind of I don't know it's whether it's frustrating or whether it's just a way to kind of either I don't know I, don't, I doubt it's a way to get more entries. I don't think it was Ascot. I think it might have been San Francisco because when we had entered for our brand, I found some I'll say an inconsistency with it, right? Because there's multiple categories that you can enter. And we had entered, of course, small batch bourbon, straight small batch bourbon, less than five years, which seems like perfect. But the other category was also just straight bourbon. So you could just enter into straight bourbon. And I thought, well, we're technically that as well. That's right. And that is going to kind of dictate what our future is going to be because we don't necessarily get to position ourselves to enter for both categories 
And at the end of the day, that is going to come down to potentially two different panels of judges that'll be tasting against a myriad of different things. So would we have fared better in straight bourbon? Would we have fared better in small batch under five? It's hard to know. And it's it's definitely like caused a little bit of confusion as a brand owner side to look at that and say, well, what if we would have done this? Would we would have gotten better than just getting a, a gold medal out of it? Yeah, I think you would. I think the um, the strongest thing to do there, as a you know, if I were a brand, I would go into the one that has the least amount of entries in it. So seventeen years and older. Is that yeah? I mean, well, if you could fit in there, <laughs> right? But in the Ascots, like we we created a blend of straights because of because of some of that, and and again, we had people entering as like small batch, and we would bring them into like the the blend of straights category where they belonged. But it, it's uh, I am I am a proponent of like going off of what is like our, our legal terms, and I. But we still allow small batch and other competitions do because that's an accepted term in the industry, and I think it's a it's a choice. It's a choice in terms of like how you view your product, and at the end of the day, something like that, the director of of a competition is going to allow most likely a blend of straights in either one of them. That's why I like having the category of blended straights because that makes it makes it easier for someone like you to like make that decision. Yeah, and I'll, I'll pick on the New York one a little bit because I think it's a it's related to the San Francisco because you have the New York World Wine and Spirits Competition. Yeah, it's part of the Tasting Alliance. That's right. Yeah, and so I was looking at that one of, of potentially entering that one too. And the same thing, you know, you had nine different categories of bourbon that you can enter, but then there was only one for rye whiskey and it was just rye whiskey. There wasn't anything of blend of straights. There was no this year and older or anything like that. So you kind of have this unbalance of what you see in terms of like what you can't enter, but maybe that's just because of the popularity of bourbon. There's just so many different categories. I, I equate that to like track and field or swimming at the Olympics because if there was just like one thing where everybody just runs in a straight line, then yeah, there's only one competition for who's the best runner. But no, there's not. You've got 100 meters, you've got hurdles, you've got all these other kind of competitions that are inside there uh, that kind of like, you know, you bubble up and all of a sudden you've got people that can win 12 gold medals because they can run in 10 different kind of competitions. It's kind of like you can also assess like what's popular in a, in a competition and bourbon is popular in all the competitions, you know, because there's a, I mean, there's a new brand opening every day and tequila is also very popular, but tequila has basically, you know, just created a handful of categories for the industry to kind of evaluate, you know, Blanco, Reposado, Anejo, and maybe extra Anejo. And, you know, with Scotch, you got the regions, you got the Lowlands, Isla, Highlands, Speyside, et cetera. And they tend to fall on that, but they have it like single malt under, you know, Highlands single malt under 10 years. Uh, so it's like that. It's like that in other categories, but they're all, you know, pretty defined. And I think this is a little throwback to the industry. The bourbon industry has done such has done such a marvelous job of using non-defined terms in their labeling. You know, small batch is not a defined term. You know, bottled and bond and straight are, but those aren't sexy terms to win a competition. And they don't. I think this is a little bit of a 
the annoyance here, a competition is is really what is marketed by the distillers themselves. You know, that's pretty much the best way to put it. For a brand owner or not a distiller, a non-distilling producer, we look at these as as necessary evils. Like you have to you have to enter these things, and we were shocked, absolutely shocked when. You know, Pursuit United won the John Barleycorn Awards. We looked at it. We were like, oh, this is amazing. That's great. We caught the typical flack from it from people on the internet saying, isn't this award show only been around three years? Like, that's that's nothing to really be happy about. But I know the judges on that competition. I'm actually a judge on that competition, but I didn't. Exactly. I didn't judge this year because that was right around the time my father-in-law passed. But that's like, I mean, th- those are really good tasters on that competition. So... Yeah, and you see some of the common names, like they finally announced who was in it. You know, you've got Susan Riegler and, and a lot of other kind of heavy hitters that we know in the bourbon world that are a part of that. And I think that's probably a, a good thing to kind of focus on on that as well. And by the way, when I say that it's important for us, it's important because it's not for the the bourbon enthusiast. The bourbon enthusiast, they already know about Bourbon Pursuit. They know who Fred Minnick is. They they know about the brands out there. They're not looking at spirits competitions for them to sway them into finding something brand new or go pick something up off the shelf that they'd never heard of before. Because as a bourbon enthusiast, you're still going to go back to the staples, trying to go hunt for Pappy. You're going to go look for all the Henry McKenna's and the smoke wagons and all the stuff that is kind of just the hype that is in the in the bourbon world. But that is that is the one percenters of bourbon. That's what we have to keep in mind here. The reason that we do this as a brand owner is because of the other 99% out there. You've got to have something that breaks out of the bounds of the people that are just all focused in on bourbon only, where people like me or you, we've got bottles that are, we, we have too much that we could drink in a lifetime, but there's a dime a dozen of people like us like out there, but there's so many other people that only have maybe four or five bottles. So when they want to go to the store and what we have to do is we have to create the advertising for it. We have to create the the marketing and we've got to give it to our distributors. Distributors have to give it to the store owners. The store owners have to go and like put these little things on the shelf that says, hey, this bourbon just won the best bourbon at this competition or it got this many medals or it's got these kind of tasting notes or 90x points on whiskey, whatever, advocate, enthusiast, like it doesn't really matter. Like That's what you have to do to get in front of people. And Ryan says it all the time that he's a sucker for it because when you look at the wall of wine, we don't know what the heck we're doing. But if you see something on there that says, hey, this was 91 points by wine enthusiasts, you're like, well, of course they know. It's wine enthusiasts. Like, they have to know what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's the the world of retail. And, you know, I, I, can, uh, I can recall many times seeing people make decisions based on those little little uh, cards up of a, of a score. And for a brand, it kind of starts at the distributor of like, what do you have to like support the product on the shelf? And if you don't have anything, you know, you're not going to make it on the shelf. That's usually how it is. Now, there are some, there are some brands that do not enter competitions. Willet does not enter competitions. Willet does not need to enter competitions. Maker's Mark didn't enter competitions for years because they put all their focus on, on on marketing and their red wax and everything, and that worked for them. But the times have changed, and you know they've put out some of their collaborations, and you know like the Black Bourbon Society's Maker's Barrel Pick, I think won San Francisco 
Like it, it, it won. It either won San Francisco or it won like it had a double gold. I know that for sure. It was like in the running to win it, and I remember that it was freaking fantastic. Yeah, you know. So now they, now they need to be out there because they're no longer the only taster on the shelf. So I, I think that uh, a, a brand has to choose wisely because yes, while it is a nominal fee, there's like, there's like thirty or forty competitions now. And if you enter all of them, it's going to add up. And then there's the there's the individual critic side, and then there's the magazine side, you know. So it's kind of like, and then you have all the influencers and YouTubers and all that. And and I, I think you've got to, if you're a brand, you got to kind of you got to dance in in all the in all the halls, you know, to get recognized, especially the the newer ones. Yeah, you got to spread yourself pretty thin on doing that. I kind of want to bring up the Black Bourbon Society thing a little bit because I remember when I saw that in the San Francisco Spirits competition, I was I was a little shocked and not like kind of shocked of like, oh, like congratulations for them. It's shocked of like, why would they enter? Because it's not Maker's Mark that entered. It was the Black Bourbon Society that entered and did it on the behalf of their half, right? Shopify's already taken the cash register online, helping millions sell billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. Shopify's point of sale is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns, from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's point-of-sale Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com slash bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash bourbon. I was a little shocked and not like kind of shocked of like, oh, like congratulations for them. It's shocked of like, why would they enter? Because it's not Maker's Mark that entered. It was the Black Bourbon Society that entered and did it on the behalf of their half, right? Yeah, I think that was a pretty unique one and that they actually did. I think they actually did do like a mainstay with it. Like, I think they have continued to make that Oh yeah, because as soon as they won, they went they went back to Maker's Mark and did several more batches of the same exact blend of their staves, which it's if you wanted to go recreate it, all you have to do is go get their bottle and look on the back and there's the recipe to figure it out. But you kind of took this into another level because with inside the Ascots, not only you have stuff for the brands, but you also experienced it and put it out and you said, Hey, I think this is a good opportunity where people that are in because this is this is what happens. You've got all these barrel picking groups that are across the country. You've got, I don't know, thousands of them. And everybody wants to, you know, trot on their high horse and say, we're the best. We pick the best barrels and so on and so forth. And and you said, you know what? Fine. Bring it. I'll, I'll create something for you. Yeah. we So we have like a, we have a club pick 
portion and the you know proceeds of that go to like charities and we also pick like best bourbon club and it's based on philanthropic stuff and and so people entered and honestly you know our, our tasters you know for that category we all pick barrels and what won was the uh, 5280 you know thunder chicken and come to find out later we'd later learn that the founders of 5280 would would start a bourbon brand with Jackie Zykin. so you know they got a little bit of uh you know bourbon picking DNA in them. Now they gotta put the put it to use. But yeah, that was that that was fun. It was a little bit for the bragging rights, but I think my vision has always been to to like get consumers engaged in a positive way in our competition. And there's so much negativity in the in the one percenter world when it comes to competitions, like the pay to play thing. And saying like, you know, there's every time something happens, like it's positive for a brand or or like a, a judge comes out and is really braggadocious and excited about it, you know, it, sometimes they get torn down a little bit. And, you know, I think when you get to see some of the enthusiasm behind it and it's a lot more fun than people want to give it credit for. I mean, like if you think about it, like, I mean, I get paid. Like when I go and judge something, I get paid. I also get paid to go drink with people. Like, I mean, I get to drink for a living, taste whiskey for a living. Quit making people jealous. Hey, well, and that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to extend that out to them, you know, because one day there will be there'll be a consumer arm. Like, and one day, if you try hard enough and you drink enough whiskey, <laughs> you can drink whiskey for a living. Just but like I will, I will tell you, in general, it's not good to have uh, consumers, general consumers, as tasters because. You have to spit, you know. So if you don't, if you don't spit, you like pass out drunk pretty quickly. You know, you're, tasting, you're, you're tasting hundreds of stuff, and so I remember, I remember we had some. Uh, I don't even remember the competition, but we had some consumer tasters, and they're like, I mean, we're like through a third flight, and we're like, yeah, what's going on? And I'm like, <laughs> I mean, have you been drinking all of this? You know, I mean, it you're was, doing it uh, wrong. I mean, we have like we have like eighty to go, and they're like fourteen in and about to pass out. So uh, those are no, novice mistakes that they'll make right. in the very beginning. You know, the one thing that you brought up earlier, and I think that we've seen the the shift and the change in the the spirits competition as well from the judging side, because as you said, that you were one of the first ones that were in the media to kind of be a part of this. That's kind of flipped from when I look at the the judges at a lot of these competitions. About half of them are media now. And here's the thing is that to be in bourbon media, I will tell you right now, I figured it out. It's a pretty low bar to get into the podcast world, right? And <laughs> and somehow we we figured it out. So, I, and, and it's easy to do it if you got an iPhone and you can record yourself and put it on YouTube. You yourself can be in whiskey media as long as you stick with it and keep going hard enough and you have opinions that might rock and shake the world and, and all of a sudden, who knows? I don't know. I, I feel like... It's it's hard to put media on the same pedestal as buyers, distributors, and ultimately the retailers that have to go and sell this because they don't have really any stake in the game. I guess you could say, right? I mean, there's there's nothing that that they I think they they probably feel honored to be a part of it, but I don't know exactly what the criteria is on how somebody goes and says like, I think you're worthy enough to come and be a judge at this particular competition. Well, I can't speak for all of them, but for the ascots, you know, I have had to have tasted with you. Like I've had to have like, sit, you know, taste, you observe your processes 
or you have to come highly recommended. Like we had a taster come on who was just highly recommended by Marianne Eves. And I was like, okay, she's in. So that's kind of, that's kind of my process. And like, I, and if I haven't tasted with you and I get a chance to taste with you later, that's kind of it. Like you can't, you can't have someone. And here's the thing about a competition is like, if you have a judge who comes in and undercuts everything, if, if someone's like saying something is like garb, like every fifth thing is garbage, you know, giving a low score, like a, a, a really, really low score is kind of a telltale sign of like, this is new to them, you know? Like, like this burns my throat a little bit. <laughs> yeah, like... It, <laughs> this whiskey hurts my chest. If someone's giving a 30-point score based on like our measurements, that's poison, you know? So like, if someone's saying something's poison, we need to stop the competition and write the federal government that there's uh we need a recall here. And so like when someone is, when someone's saying like, we can have fun and joke about things, saying something smells and tastes like hot garbage, but th- really think about that. Like if something really did taste and smell like hot garbage, it's not going to sell and it's not going to get the grade, but there's hot garbage is a, is, is a, a pretty general note, that's not going to kill you. But if you smell something like uh, turpentine like if turpentine makes a tasting note, I kind of want to stop it and be like, all right, we need to, you know, check this out for safety reasons. So I don't even know where, where I was going. The matter of like recruiting judges, you know, so those are very specific things that I look for is like how you assess something that's bad. If you assess something that's bad with like pretty practical tasting notes and aromatic notes in if you say something tastes like hot gar smells and tastes like hot garbage but you give it a 65 you know i'm kind of questioning your value of hot garbage because <laughs> you don't you have you have a different regard for a hot garbage yeah hot but- garbage is like it's a little lower than 65 but i guess i'm talking in circles here but uh, <laughs> but in terms of media coming on board really it's to get you know there's a there's an assumption that if you have more Instagram followers, then you're better at something. And I think, and I don't, I don't think that uh, competitions are or brands are immune to that. Or is it kind of like the the opposite of that a little bit? Because those particular competitions want those people that are influencers that have the the followers to say, "Hey, I'm going to be judging this competition. You should go and check it out. You should go follow them, enter here." And they're kind of using them as as kind of a springboard, if you will. Yeah, that that's exactly what I meant. Like that is exactly why you will see those. And I will say that some of them are good tasters. Like I tasted uh with uh Nate um Ghana. Yeah, Nate Ghana. He's a he's a good taster. Some of them are good and some of them are like you know, and sometimes people age out you know there's a lot of veteran writers who are no longer in tasting competitions because their palate you know they're in their 60s and they can't taste like they used to and that's just part of it so it goes both ways it's like turning 15 in the gymnastics like at that point you're past your prime yeah yeah and and i'll say when i started writing in this space which is 2006 there was only 15 full-time whiskey writers in the world you know now you have uh, websites like Uproxx. You've got probably 30 different spirits writers for Forbes. 
you've got the Courier Journal, USA Today, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. Everyone's writing about whiskey at a serious level or a listicle level, at least. <laughs> Those are the greatest. Got to love the listicles. And for me, when I when I look at media, like when, when someone m- makes the jump to be a judge is when they when they break away from like when they break away from what everybody else is doing and just writing their own true real opinion. I honestly think Reddit has some great tasters. Like I'll go through Reddit and uh, read some of their tasting notes. I'm like, that's spot on. This is a good taster. I recruited one of them to be in the competition and to to be a judge because I was so impressed with their tasting notes. So I would say like the form of media today is not, it's not just Instagram. It's not just being a magazine writer or something. It's, it's all over the place. Yeah. And you've got to spread yourself across a lot of those different mediums because audiences are everywhere. And I think that's back to the the brand thing is that you'd mentioned, you know, you've got to sprinkle a little bit on the competition side. You got to sprinkle a little bit on the influencer side. And that's, that's I mean, that's, that's true. That's what it is. It's like, you've got to get to people no matter where they're at, because you've got to look at the one percenters, you got to look at the broader audience and you got to figure out what's my angle, what's going to make me different. And is this competition going to stand out enough that it's going to sell a few bottles? Uh, fortunately, it does work because, you know, I, from firsthand experience, we can say that after we won Barleycorn Awards, we have a, maybe it's a nervous tick or it's a complex that we have, but Ryan and I, every single day, we check seal box inventory to see if it's going down. And that was a good indicator to say, okay, we went from 200 down to 70 in a matter of 48 hours, right? So that's a visual way that we can see, yes, that there is a, there is a reaction to these things. Like that does mean something. And even if people that we're putting it out there on aren't, because we're not in the general public. I mean, this is our own Instagram. This is the seal box mailing list. And that's still, gosh, what, maybe 2%. We'll go from one to 2% of the bourbon world. So we can measure that and we can see exactly what moves and, and what doesn't. And that's how we start figuring out, okay, well, what is our next kind of take in this? And so that's why we look at it and we say, okay, well, if we're going to continue entering these things, how long are we going to do it? Like we already won best bourbon. Do we, do we try to enter again next year and then we get a bronze and then we're, we look like, we look like jackasses, but we're going to keep entering stuff and, until we feel that, you know, it's, you know, it's making a, a difference and you can go and you can look at all the brands that enter everything. And here's a, here's a good question. I'll, I'll ask you, Fred, because we're having this own internal debate on our end too, mm-hmm. is that, when we enter different products, or should we, when we enter a product, there's a batch usually next to something, right? Barrel Bourbon does it pretty good today. They'll enter in, you know, batch 32 or batch 29, and they'll get a grade on something like that versus something like W.O. Weller, right? We know there's batches. We know there's serial numbers or Henry McKenna or name any other bourbon out there. And it's just the brand. Now, for you, do you feel that people should enter based on the batch number or just on just the brand? Yeah, well, the, a lot of that is going to be the person doing the entry and, of, of the competition. And, and you know, Barrel Bourbon brands their, they brand their uh, batch numbers. Yeah, that's definitely part of their That's their part strategy. of their marketing. You know, Weller doesn't. 
I mean, Weller just, I mean, you, we know it by proof, but if you know the laser coding and if, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't recall, they, they don't put an actual year. No, they do not. They do not. But you can, you just have to look at the laser code. You, you have to look at it. Out. So like they don't brand it that way. And in fact, you know, when it, most of these competitions will get the, the previous year's Buffalo Trace Antique Collection. So the way it kind of falls, it, it, it falls awkward. Because I remember like Stag Jr. used to just be on its own and then they started marketing and putting batch numbers next to it. So that's also kind of one where they kind of maybe went a little bit backwards and figuring out how from the marketing aspect, but as well as how they enter it and how they promote it. Right. And I think that's a lot of like consumer appeal. Like even with us, like when, you know, we had a wheat whiskey when uh, Journeyman Corsup's Buggy Whip, the longest name ever. (laughs) <laughs> that one, that one best in show for us. And everybody was reaching out, what batch number was it? And, you know, we had to go back to the bottle, you know, because they didn't input that in there. And, you know, I was just like, look at the bottle, you know, <laughs> I was like, Here's I posted, look at the bottle. But people want that level of detail. I think from our side, you know, competitions could do a better job of showing people how things did and what won. I mean, the websites are are often not designed to be consumer friendly. They're more like trade centric. And as a whole, like there's an entire business of of competitions. You know, you enter one competition and then you make a list of all these other competitions. Guilty. That's what I've been doing. And, you know, I entered I entered the Webbies, right? And so everybody ends up, you know, sending me stuff. And then there was uh, another competition that stemmed off from the webbies so there's like all of these different competitions that now are like targeting us for podcasting it's just the way it is i've been a judge on some of those non-booze competitions like i was a judge on the james beard awards for a long time i've been a judge for books i've been a judge on articles and there's just all these different things that you know it's it's a business world that's you know pretty, pretty, pretty well respected because everybody wants something in their office to say they did a good job. And that's what it comes down to. People want to know they did well, whether or not it resonates with the consumer base or not. They like knowing that a panel of judges liked their whiskey or liked their podcast and it helps them. It's an attaboy. Right. That's I really do agree with that, because at the end of the day, once we well, actually once the email comes in, I see the subject line and it says in here is enclose your reward, your award or what the judges thought. I have this nervous kind of feeling as soon as I click on it and you're like, okay, I feel pretty good. I forward it to Ryan and we're like, all right, so I guess we'll make some graphic and we'll put it out there. But it really it hasn't really hit us yet on how much we need to market this. And that's, I think, from a brand owner perspective, that's where we have to take the next step. And we've got to get it into more of the the rest of the world. And so we're, we're making efforts on that end uh, to do that as well. One other kind of question as we kind of start winding this down a little bit is that in the past few years, and this is because I have, uh, I'm not on a mission to destroy anything, but it's just a a thought and a a something that I see is that you continually see MGP whiskeys rank incredibly high. And we're we're not too sure if it's a theory or anything like that. Ryan's theory was that, well, a 36% rye mash bill 
it's going to overpower pretty much anything that you've been trying when you're trying 60 of them. Therefore, you're going to look at it and you're like, oh, this is this is good. You know, after you've been trying 60 of them, you try 36% and all of a sudden it's going to move on. We also kind of look at that as, as, well, it's the same crap that everybody else has. You know, whether, you know, you're, you're a source MGP brand, there's nothing wrong with it. They make great whiskey. And from a, a, a judge's standpoint, I don't know how you look at that and go, gosh, these all taste the same. Or how you go and you say, well, this one's better than this one, even though it's the same exact thing that's in the bottle. I'm going to, you know, add to Ryan's theory here, how a tasting goes. And like, if anyone's ever watched me with my live streams, with like when I'm going through my tasting, I talk about this a lot is like, you have to really be honed in to your palate to not let anything kind of come in and bias you. But I'm just one judge. Steve Bill's just one judge. You know, we not everyone's going to be applying that same level of discipline uh, during a, a flight of of eighty in a day. You know, that's just a fact. And the the theory that I think Ryan's is true is based on those whiskeys are not terribly flawed, meaning that they don't have that note of like over oaked. So when something is is overly bitter, it will often come off badly in a competition because when you're when your palate let's let's say let's say like a panel of judges their palates are wrecked, bitterness can come off really disappointing when you've been tasting all day. And that's uh that's a fact. People do respond negatively toward a bitter note. And so when when things are not flawed in a terribly bad way, but are different in a positive way, like that high rye comes off as spice. Well, if you've been if you've been tasting all day and you and you get a high rye that just blows you back, it feels positive. And so that is that is true. There's another brand that does exceptionally well in spirits competitions, and that's 291. 291 won best rye whiskey in the world at the world whiskey competitions. I'm a former judge on that. You've got people like Bill Thomas who are judges on that. I mean, really great judges for that competition. And when you taste 291 in a flight and you, like I say, it's like the third thing in the flight, your palate is used to spirit. And then you get to this and it's got a different appealing no, now that can go that can that smoke note that it has in there. It can go down the tubes if you don't like smoke, or it can go it can millerate your your thought process. So, like you see, two ninety one has tons of stickers on it, and they do so well in competition because they're different, but they're not flawed. And flaws are not saying like it's perfect. Flaws, if it's something is flawless. That means it doesn't have the turpentine notes in there. It doesn't have like uh, uh, flecks of grain that are overpowering. It doesn't have over oakness. That's what I mean by, you know, when something is flawless. I don't mean like it's perfect. I mean, it's not lacking bad distillation or aging techniques in it. And when you when you get so far into a tasting, you've had so many in a day and something is appealing in a positive way, whether it's smoke, whether it's spice, that can absolutely leapfrog something in a competition. And here's the thing about it. It's almost like it's almost like at the Kentucky Derby. 
when you're if, if you have a horse that draws the twentieth hole, you're screwed most of the time. There's only been two horses in the entire history of the Derby that have won. That was Rich Strike and Big Brown, and those are that's a rarity. You know, usually you don't have a choice of where your whiskey ends up in the flight. If you are one of those that's high rye or you have some smoke and you're the first thing that's going to be tasted, I almost guarantee you that as a panel, you know, a panel will negatively grade that in comparison if it was the last thing to be tasted. Now, I'm different. Like, I I don't feel like I would would put my, that would happen with me. I feel like I would judge them equally no matter where they were in the tasting. But not all panelists would, you know, go through the same processes. Well, all I can say is that I am incredibly impressed with your derby knowledge, being able to pull the the 20th hole and know the two winners out of it. <laughs> I was about to say, I was like, man, he, he I'm, not, I'm not even going to go fact check it. I'm just going to go ahead and take that as gospel. Yeah, go fact check it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's only, you know, all my relationship with the derby museum all these years has paid off, I suppose. There you go. You learn, you watch that video at the end about 14,000 times. You finally start remembering a few things. <laughs> right. Well, this has been a good episode because we talked about pretty much everything. We talked about the consumer front. We talked about being a brand owner. We talked about being a judge, owning your own competition, and ultimately what it means for everybody that's listening to this as a bourbon enthusiast. I hope this was giving you a little bit more insight into the other four personalities that you need to take a look at when it comes to a spirits competition. Most of you probably won't care because you have your your druthers, you have your go-tos, you have the hype, you've got the stickers, you've got all of those things that everybody kind of chases after. But now you kind of understand when a new competition comes out or a competition releases its winners and there's a big, you know, people are posting everywhere on social media. There's a lot of criticism out there. Now you kind of understand where it's coming from at, at multiple different angles too. And I'll say, I'll, I'll add to this, you know, in the 1800s, they used to have the governments, state governments would actually have people who would certify the quality of a whiskey. And we don't have that anymore, but they used to have like government tasters called assayers and they would go around and certify a whiskey as being good. And you would see newspaper articles saying it was like, it has the stamp of assayer number 5567. You know, and we've lost uh, in, 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 in beef, you know, you have USDA Prime, USDA Choice, USDA Select. What a lot of people don't know about that is that the cattle industry, specifically the packing industry, they pay for the USDA Prime in order to have that graded designation. That is, a, that is not a something that's given to them by the government. They actually pay for that. And so we see this and we have seen this in our lives in you know the existence of our country, we've had people who have graded things for our consumption. The difference between this and the USDA standards is that there's one USDA. There's some certified organic and certified Angus beef and all those different things. There's one USDA, and there seems like there's 100 spirits competitions right now. So you have to decide which ones matter to you, if any at all. Well, you just kind of ruined the blue styrofoam at Costco for me because when I see... <laughs> When I see that, I know that it's USDA Prime. Well, I, I'll tell you, you know, you'll have to see if I have it here. No, you'll have to like read one of my first books about beef. I'll have to, have to give that to you. 
I, I know you wrote a book on that. that. Was your that was your first love before getting into this? But you still love hamburgers. We all love beef. Oh man, are you kidding me? Look at me. <laughs> I'm a hamburger cheeseburger machine. pursuit coming soon. Mm-hmm. But that's going to do it for this episode, Fred. It's been a great pleasure having you on, being able to talk about this, and I hope everybody feels a little bit more educated about spirits competitions and all the different kind of angles that you take into it so make sure you go follow fred fredmedic.com all his socials his podcast as well and make sure you follow bourbon pursuit with that cheers everybody we'll see you next week like it sucks <laughs> <laughs>